Okay, Coastline. Thank you for stepping into that four minutes of family. It might have been five minutes. I don't know. It's hard for me to cut it off. One of the best parts of church is being together, amen, and connecting. Hey, Sean, I think you got the math right on that, so, so good job. Last time I checked, you know, 90 plus 50 plus 5 was 145, so. Dude, miracles. Miracles and baby Jesus, miracles on stage here at Coastline. Hey, um, we have lit our second Advent candle, our peace candle. Last week, we lit the hope candle. This week is our peace candle. And as you know, if you're a student of the word or you've been in church for a little bit, you know that, that Jesus came and died on a cross to afford us peace with his Father, our Father, the living God. And in John 14, 27, Jesus goes beyond that and he promises not only, hey, am I going to make a way to give you peace, but I'm going to leave you, I'm going to give you my peace. Now, the question that I have is that if Jesus has given us his peace, then why are we such an anxious people? Is it in part that we live in a chaotic world? I mean, you and I have had quite a week already of living. We got the tragic news, I think, on Tuesday of the shooting at Oxford High School outside of Detroit, where there was a needless loss of life yet again. And as we take in that tragedy, we realize that in 2021, we had 28 and counting school shootings where there was some kind of injury or fatality. And that strikes at the fear or the heart, at the peace of grandparent and parent and student alike. We've lived in a world where we think we're making our way through COVID. We've maybe gotten used to the masks, maybe not. Maybe we're just enduring that all together. And Delta is sweeping through, and now Omicron's here, and there's this new variant. And it just seems like peace is so fleeting. On top of all of these macro things, you and I have just individual personal problems that come into our lives week in and week out. And I think some of us are going through life and we're just feeling like, man, problems come like a set of waves. I just get my head above the water and all I can see coming is the next set of problems. And so our need for peace is a very real thing. And Sean introduced this concept last week of Christmas creep. The reality that at Halloween, you could buy your Halloween decorations and your Christmas decorations all in one. That as a society, we have moved forward our celebration of Christmas. And I think that's in part, we long for the nostalgia of Christmas. It's a place to hide from the reality of the struggle of our daily lives. I mean, I have this day every year that I love. It's the day after Thanksgiving. That's where the Hanger family and the Hanger household, we go to Home Depot, that great place to buy a tree. It's like chopping it fresh off the mountain. Not really, but it's cheap. So we go to Home Depot, we pick out our tree. I had my Christmas lights already up on my house. Usually we buy the tree and we decorate it the next day, but today we were all in it, and so we got our tree, we set it up, we decorated our tree, we put on the Christmas carols, we had food, we had the house totally set up. I was digging it, my kids were enduring it. And then about an hour and a half later, I found myself sitting by myself next to my beloved tree. And everybody had gone on to do whatever that which they wanted to do for the rest of the day. 
and my Christmas nostalgia, I was like, wait, wait a minute. Like, this is the day. Where did everybody go? And I share that story because that's life, isn't it? We have a great Friday after Thanksgiving, but Saturday always comes. You might have a great Advent season, but then inevitably January always comes. And with the reality of that, where do you and I find a sustaining, lasting peace? And really what I want to give you this afternoon as we open up God's word together is this very biblical concept that sustaining peace comes from preparation. Let me say that again. Sustaining, lasting, enduring peace comes from preparation. It's not something that you just happens to you. It's not something that just falls in your lap or falls into your life. Sustaining peace takes preparation, like wading slowly in a pool step by step. So what is this preparation that I'm talking about? This preparation, if you look into scripture, is this real reality of our call to repentance and confession. That repentance and confession is how we prepare our hearts to receive and make manifest the peace that Jesus has afforded us on the cross. But repentance and confession sound like the spiritual version of a root canal. Right, like if I asked you, hey, would you raise your hand? Who would like to go first and stand up and just confess your sins to the community? Right, like everybody was just like, oh, heck no. Right, good time to look at my feet. Time for me to go use the restroom. Nature calls at these crazy times. Because we're afraid to step into this idea of repentance and confession because it's needed and necessary and yet it's scary. It can be painful and oftentimes we want to avoid it. Yet my hope is that tonight that we see together that confession is a way that we experience the peace that Christ has given us on the cross and the peace that he has promised us. Because I believe it's through confession that we prepare our hearts to receive the sustaining peace of Jesus. So with that, would you stand with me and I'm gonna read part of our text for this evening. It comes out of the promise of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40. Isaiah pens this in chapter 40, verse one. I'm gonna read verses one through five. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me pray for us as we continue on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every individual that's made it in here tonight. Lord, we pray that this would be more than a worship gathering. Father, that it would be a community of your people who encounter the living God through worship and through the word. And Father, through your community of saints. Lord, we pray that you would speak into our minds and hearts, that we would hear from you tonight, that we would receive that which we desperately need the most. And so to that end, Father, we're asking for you to show up, 
work in us, work on us. Father, that we might reflect more and more of the goodness of your son as we leave this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for standing. Please be seated. So we begin here with this idea that peace is not something that you and I create. That should not surprise us as I talked about the chaotic world that we live in from week to week. But peace begins in the very character and activity of God. See, peace begins with the goodness of God. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The background here coming out of chapter 39 is Isaiah has come and and told the king Hezekiah that in the future, out of God's loving discipline, he's going to take his people, the Israelites, and allow them to be conquered by the Assyrians and held or basically taken captive into Babylon and begin a 70-year exile that's taking place there. And yet, the character of God says, in that discipline, I'm not going to forget you. Because in this moment, in this prophetic word out of Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, God is going to declare comfort, comfort for his people. It's a promise that he's going to bring the exiles out of captivity in his timing. This idea of comfort is both a declaration and it's also a decree. It's God's voice speaking in and breaking through both Judah's despair as they're going to be in captivity, in exile, and also breaking the power of Babylon. And the language here, he says, comfort, comfort. The, the language is that it's an ongoing decree. It's an ongoing declaration from the very courts of the heavenly realms in which God is enthroned. It's like a repeated phrase if you've ever been in a valley and you've yelled out something and you can hear the echo go and go and go. That's the understanding here of, hey, comfort I am declaring. Comfort, comfort for my people. Discipline is going to end. And this is a very powerful word because if you remember last week as Sean kicked off our Advent series and talked about the reality of Advent starting in the dark, and moving toward the light of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's why you stepped into this room this evening and it's darker than normal because we're only lighting part of our decorations. We're only lighting part of the room to remind us that we are people that are always moving from darkness into the light through Jesus Christ. And God's promise here is that I will be with and I will comfort my people. He says in verse 2, that he's going to speak tenderly. All this gets to God's disposition toward us. That what Hebrews 12 tells us is true, that in 12.6 and 12.10, that God disciplines those he loves because he wants the best for them. And this is what he's done with his people Israel. He's taken Judah into captivity because they wouldn't listen and they kept bowing down to false idols and they wouldn't trust Yahweh, the living God, the God of the Bible. And so he says, so that you might learn the lesson, I'm going to send you into this exile. But I am like a loving father who disciplines, not out of harshness and not because I get my kicks out of it, but because I want to turn your heart toward me. 
And so he turns the heart of the people when he says, I speak tenderly, compassion. It's this compassionate voice calling God's people to respond in love. And what I love at the end of verse 2 is it's a threefold declaration. Look back with me. He tells them that their hard service has been completed, that their sin has been paid for, and that they have received double for all their sin. Their service is complete. The sin has been paid for, and restitution has been made. I love what theologian Walter Brueggemann says when he comes to this passage. He says, it's like God is saying in his comfort, comfort, he's saying, enough. Enough sentence. Enough penalty. Enough payment. Enough exile. Enough displacement. See, friends, peace begins in the very good character of God toward us, his people, where he says, even in your struggle, even in your strife, even in your sin, even in the ways that you choose to walk away from my holiness, I speak comfort. I am with you. He goes on and he says that peace comes through God's divine intervention. It starts in the character of God. It continues through God's divine intervention. Look with me in verses 3 through 5. Many of you will recognize this prophetic voice of Isaiah, and we'll talk about where it shows up in the gospel in a minute. But he says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. See, it's a work of God that God is going to prepare a way in the desert for his people to return. It's a prophetic promise coming from Isaiah the prophet to say that God is going to create a super highway across the desert between Babylon and Jerusalem so that Judah, his people, can have a quick and safe return. And this prophetic word that's spoken, the end of the 700s, comes to fruition in the 500s where King Cyrus is stirred, as we're told in Ezra chapter 1. His heart is stirred, and he lets Judah go under the leadership of uh, Zerubbabel. But this is God's work. The valleys will be raised, the mountains will be made low, the rough ground will be made level, and the rugged places will be made smooth. See, God is up to making a highway for his people to come home, and he's so committed to it that he makes it straight, level, and free of obstacle. God wants his people to return home. This highway is a highway of return, a return home for Judah into Jerusalem, but a return to the Lord as well. In many ways, it's a homecoming. And you and I know that this feeling and longing for home is part of our humanity. I remember as a young man, I was newly married, and a friend of mine that Janine and I and others had gone to Vladivostok, Russia for six weeks on a missions trip to love on people and to communicate the good news of the gospel. And I had a friend after that trip, Janine and I got married. He decided he, the Lord was calling him back to go back there for a year. And during a Christmas break, I decided I'm going to travel back to Vladivostok for like two, two and a half weeks just to be with my brother and to encourage him in this missional call that he has on his life. Now, I don't know about you, 
but most people don't choose to spend December in Vladivostok, Russia. All I can tell you is it's not as cold as Siberia, but it felt like it was close. And I remember as a newly uh, married man, I was just like two weeks in, and I was just missing my wife, and I was longing for home. And I remember technology, you know, we couldn't just FaceTime back then. I remember I couldn't, like, if I wrote a letter, by the time it got from Russia back to her, it wasn't going to happen. And so I remember just writing her letters that I knew the quickest way for me to get to her get these letters to her, was to carry them with me on my way home, and when I entered the door, be like, here you go. That's what, how much I was missing you the last two weeks. But you all have stories somewhere in your life of longing for home. I mean, it is a Christmas theme that our you know, uh, consumeristic culture has grabbed a hold of, I mean, what Christmas movie does not have some kind of theme of returning home? Whether if it's home for the holidays or family stone or home alone, or I think even Elf would fit this category, whatever your choice of Christmas movie is, they're tapping into this deep-seated human desire where we all long for home because, friends, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, from that point, you and I wrestle with the reality of this sin-stoked world being our home. We were made and we long for something different. We long for something where weather doesn't create disaster where viruses like COVID don't ravage the globe, where cancer does not take loved ones, where mass shootings do not happen, where justice is upheld for all those without sinful bias or prejudice, where things don't break down and bodies don't wear down, and we don't always have the shadow of death chasing us at every turn. See, that thing in you that says something is not quite right in this world is a longing, a beacon that God has placed in you, as it says in Ecclesiastes, that God has placed eternity into your hearts, and you get thrusted out into this world, and we do our best to make it safe and have our Christmas nostalgia and invite our family in to come decorate our Christmas tree. But this world is sadly broken and we long for something different. Friends, ever since the garden, humanity has longed for home, a return back to the garden, and not just the garden, what the garden was, where Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with their creator, and they were in relationship without sin, and men and women got together and enjoyed this dynamic relationship where they didn't tug and pull and fight and twist against each other. We all long for home. Again, I love what Walter Brueggemann says here. He says, no matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry inside us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home that beacons us. It's that aspect of us, as I said before, that we know as we experience the trauma of the world, something inside us saying, we weren't made for this. This is not how life is supposed to be. And yet, this is God's work, building this highway to return the exiles home. 
Like that path, God has created a home, and that is the gospel. See, the gospel is a path of peace that calls us home. The ministry of Jesus and the gospel is a call, friends, to come home. It's a call to return to the Lord. It's a joyful and public homecoming for all those who feel alienated and isolated because of sin. And we see this in John the Baptist as he picks up this quote from Isaiah 40. Did you know that all four gospels identify Isaiah 43 as being fulfilled in the prophet John the Baptist or John the Baptizer? And see, so there's a second fulfillment of Isaiah. The first fulfillment is that God is going to bring his exiles out of captivity in, in Babylon and bring them back into the land of Jerusalem. But fast forward 700 years from when Isaiah makes this prophetic pronouncement from the Lord and the ultimate, the second, the greater fulfillment of this truth is going to be found in Jesus Christ who becomes the new superhighway, the new path of peace to a right relationship with God, not by our actions and not by our works, but by the very work of Jesus Christ and by us saying, I need you, and the grace of God showering upon our lives and God saying, I know you're not good enough, but my son has cleansed you. And my son, Jesus, and in his sacrificial death and resurrection, he has made you worthy. John would prepare God's people for this new path of peace. Look with me in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near." This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So here's this quote out of Isaiah 40, chapter 3, being spoken about in every gospel, and here Matthew pens and says, hey, that prophet that came in the wilderness that had its first fulfillment, the second and greatest fulfillment is we see in John the Baptist who is preparing God's people for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And if you were to summarize, well, what is John's ministry about? Matthew gives us a great summation in one line. Some of you are wishing my sermon was one line. I'm sorry, it's not. But here's what Matthew pens for John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's his way of saying, look, Jesus the Messiah has come. It's dawning. He's beginning this new ministry where we can follow Jesus and have this right relationship with God. But if you want to be part of this dynamic superhighway of peace through Jesus, you've got to repent. That's how you're going to step into this sustaining peace. Now, what's interesting to me is this command to repent. We're told in verse 5, I'm not going to read it, but it's all of these religious Jews coming out of Jerusalem and all of Judea coming up to John to be baptized. And you might be thinking, well, why do all the religious Jews need to come up and repent? They're kind of like the first century version of us who go to church. You might be thinking, wait, don't those outside the church who don't follow Jesus Christ, don't they need to repent? Don't they need to come to see the goodness and the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ? Yes. But it can't be lost on us that it's those that 
believe in Yahweh, the living God, those that are following the Torah, the Old Testament law, that are coming out and preparing their hearts through repentance for the coming Messiah. And I think it's the same for us today. If we want to experience this enduring, sustaining peace that Jesus has promised us, you and I grab a hold of it and make it manifest in our lives through the act of repentance. To repent simply means to turn. It's to turn away from all the ways that we are unrighteous, all the ways that we don't please God in our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts. But it's not only a turning from those things, it's a turning to God. If my sin is over here, it's not only turning from my sin, but it's turning toward this cradle, this manger that's going to hold the Christ, the King, the one who's going to grow up and die and be the one who's made a way for me to find forgiveness. I run after him. That's what it means to repent. I turn from my sin and I run toward Christ. I follow him. So repentance. To experience God's sustaining peace. Friends, we need to be people who repent. If you'll turn back with me, why is this? Look with me back in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. The, the prophetic word from Isaiah goes on and in verse 6. He says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? He says, all people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. He says it twice in there that humanity, you and I are like the grass. We wither. We're like the flowers who fall or who die and shrivel up. It's God's way of saying humanity, you and me, we're unreliable, we're inconsistent, and we're unfaithful. When we compare ourselves to the living, holy God, the reality is we find ourselves unreliable, inconsistent, and unfaithful. I mean, Hezekiah in the two or three chapters before this prophetic word is a great example. In 37, the angel of the Lord comes and says, I'm not going to allow the, the king of Assyria and his son Marduk to overtake Jerusalem and Judah. And the angel of the Lord comes out and goes to battle for God's people and kills 185,000 Assyrian uh, men in the army. And they just flee for their lives. And God utterly saves them from their destruction. That's verse 37. And then in verse 38, God comes to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and says, hey, look, you're going to die soon. Get your affairs in order. And Hezekiah, like any of us, says, I'm not quite ready yet. So he goes to the Lord in prayer and says, I've been faithful and I've followed you the days of my life. And the Lord says, I'm going to add 15 years of your life I'm going to give you 15 more years, and I'm going to give you the promise that Assyria is never going to come in and take this land. And as a sign to you, God makes the sun travel from the west to the east. The sun travels back. The shadow goes in the opposite direction. What? 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I feel like the Lord confirms something in me, he doesn't move the sun. So Hezekiah has had these two miraculous miracles where he knows God is with me. I mean, if anybody could be found faithful, shouldn't it be King Hezekiah? Well, then when the prophet comes in verse 39 and says, look, because of the sin of the people, I'm going to send you as discipline into exile, into Babylon, and your very own people are going to be carried off. Your very own line uh, of heritage, your descendants will be not only sent there, but they'll be turned into eunuchs and they will serve the kings of Babylon in his palace. Now, look with me in verse 8. Look at Hezekiah's response. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Now, we read that and we cast judgment. At least I did this week. I was like, Hezekiah, what? Oh, that's cool. My descendants, my, the grandkids of my grandkids are going to be sent out and have to serve Babylon and be turned into eunuchs and we're gonna, the land's going to be laid waste and we're going to lose Jerusalem and we're, Judah's going to be sent into exile. But you know what? It's good because in my lifetime, I get peace and security. Like, can you get any more selfish? Friends, we are like grass. Our faithfulness does not last and that's why we need to be a people who repent and confess. I mean, I look at my life this week. In my actions, I yelled. I cussed in frustration. Looking at, I looked at judgment in another person. I acted selfishly. I, choose, I chose to sit instead of serve. And those were only my actions. As I looked at my attitudes this week, I thought, man, I'm not an angry man, but I see anger there. I'm not a greedy man, but I see greed there. I'm not a fearful man, but I'm afraid in this moment. And I know that you can identify that as you peer into your mind and heart, you see thoughts and attitudes and actions that aren't befitting of a righteous king. See, the longer we follow Jesus, we might sin less, but the more we become aware of our sinful attitudes and our actions, friends, we are like grass. We're unreliable, inconsistent, and unfaithful. So what do we do? We repent, and as we see here in John, he says that we confess our sin to the Lord. Look with me back in Matthew chapter three, verse six. He says, confessing their sin, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So these religious people go out and they repent. They turn from their sin and they turn toward God, and that whole act of repentance begins with confession. To confess means to say the same thing to agree with God that you are grass and that you need his presence and faithfulness in your life. I love what Joanne Jung, who's a prof in, at Biola in the New Testament department with my wife, in her book, Knowing Grace, she defines confession this way. Confession is that point when my mouth gives voice to what my heart knows to be true about my sin. No matter what the response or cause and without excuse, Genuine confession and repentance allow the soul to be most receptive to abundant, divine, life-transforming forgiveness. In that quote, she's saying that we are simply in our mouths confessing what we know in our hearts to be true. That we don't measure up to God's good and holy and perfect moral standard. 
And yet in this confession of confessing our sin back to the Lord, we find this life-transforming forgiveness. I mean, we don't confess because God needs it. You know this. He already knows it. We confess because we need it. Look with me in a couple passages I want to rattle off if you'll put them on the side screens for me. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions or he conceals his sins will not prosper. But he who confesses and, forget, uh, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then in Psalm 32, 1 through 5, it begins and says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And then in verse 3, David's going to pen, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. See, sometimes we forget that our unconfessed sin is a weight that we're carrying around in the spiritual backpack. And our body wasn't designed to carry that weight day in and day out. Ultimately can lead to physical ailments in our life. But the good news, 1 John 1, 9, the New Testament comes in and says, but if you and I will confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I should just stop there and we should just say, hallelujah, we're done. God has declared comfort, comfort for my people because they can come to me and say, yep, I've done it again. I've missed your mark. And he says, that's okay. You're my beloved. I forgive you again and again and again. Like the resources of the ocean, God's forgiveness doesn't dry up. It doesn't run out. We are always covered in it. And yet confession can be so difficult, can't it? Unconfessed sin is often like rust in our souls. First it corrodes, then it spreads, then it destroys. But as you and I step into the blessing of confession, let me highlight and finish with giving us some of the fruit that comes to our lives as you and I confess. As we confess our sins to the Lord, it brings us out of hiding. It brings us out of darkness, out of the trap of guilt, out of self-loathing, into the good news of the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ. Where you could have walked into these church doors thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I did this week, or I can't believe what I didn't do this week. And you can confess that to the Lord and the Lord says, my son, my daughter, comfort, comfort, I forgive you. I give you again this peace that's always been part of your life as you professed faith in me. But as you let go of this weight on your back, now your hands are open to receive and hold the peace that Christ wants to bring into our lives. I love what Dallas Willard says here. He says, in confession, we lay down the burden of hiding and pretending. Can we just stop there for a moment and say, as church people, we have a PhD in hiding. Because for some reason, the world gets it. You can go live however you want to live in the world, but we've reversed it. In the church, we've said, no, you, you, you can't. You've got to hide. 
There's this false pretense that you and I, I'm holy, you're holy, Christ is holy, God's holy, the Holy Spirit's holy, everybody is in here is holy, amen, let's go home. And that's true and not true. God has declared you holy in his son Jesus Christ, but you and I know we are far from holy. But in that hiding and in that guilt, He says, it takes up so much dreadful amount of human energy. We find freedom, we find energy, we find strength when we confess. We also, confession disarms the power of sin. It ushers in God's forgiveness, as we've already read in 1 John 1, 9. Confession, friends, it empowers us. It makes us more available to the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, Joanne Jung says it this way, the more specific we are, let me say, the more specific we can be in confession, the more available we make ourselves to God's Spirit doing His work and less alluring sin becomes. See, friends, confession isn't just about naming things in the past. When we confess our sins before the Lord, we are naming our future. You might be naming what you've done in the past, but what you're doing in confession is agreeing with God that you didn't have it right. You're releasing yourself from that weight, from that shame, from that guilt, and in this newfound freedom of heart and mind, your hands are now open to pick up the new possibilities that God has in store for you. Confession isn't just about naming the past. It's about naming our future as we follow hard and long after our Savior, Jesus, who's made a way in his tremendous grace and forgiveness. Amen? Now, some of you might be asking, this new work, Garrick, sounds great, but I've confessed a thousand times, and it doesn't seem like anything changes. I would simply say this. If that's your experience, you're not alone. God still says comfort, comfort to his people. He says come, continue to confess. And if you are in a place where you are stuck and you're like, man, I'm coming here for the umpteenth time, the 1,000, the 10,000, what feels like a millionth time, telling God the same thing. If that's your experience, I would say, you have God's grace. You have God's forgiveness. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired of you. But if that's your experience, the reality is you probably haven't let enough people into your life. That experience is not traumatic in that God can't save you. It's just a sign that you're trying to live privately and you can't find the resources in and of yourself. You need to let more people into your situation. You need others and you need resources outside yourself. And let me finish with this. Isaiah, go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Don't worry, I'm not gonna open that book. Let me read this well-known verse. And let me have you hear it in the context of confession. Verse 28. Do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. When you come to confess, the Lord is not tired and weary of you. Because he doesn't grow tired or weary. 
What does he do when we confess? He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even young grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, if you want to experience God's everlasting all-encompassing, sustaining peace to carry you this week. It's about preparing our hearts through the act of confession. And so we're going to end our service. I'm going to invite Michael and the worship team forward, and I'm going to give you a time of response. If you'll put this uh, slide on the screen for me, I'm just simply asking you to take this moment and move through these three steps. Lord, I confess. Name it out to the Lord. After you've done that, Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for. Ask for his forgiveness. He doesn't withhold it. He wants to forgive to open up your hands from the junk that you're carrying and bring that new experience into your life. And he says, Lord, moving forward, or Lord, moving forward, I need you too, and I need to. You might need to go and make amends. You might need to go and make restitution with someone or a broken relationship. I trust that God in his wisdom through divine providence of the Holy Spirit will speak to you in these moments as we have a kind of corporate opportunity to individually and privately confess our sin. So let's step in. Let's enjoy that for a moment as we prepare our hearts to receive the peace of Jesus Christ. Let's do that together.